First Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes, Therefore, when I could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. And for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. In 1536, John Calvin was fleeing. He was running out of uh, Paris and France, or being run out of Paris and France, and he was on his way to Strasbourg, Germany where he planned to settle into a life of study. He stopped briefly for one night in Geneva. And that was his intent to keep going. He was there and a Protestant preacher named William Farrell caught word that Calvin was in town. And he found him, tracked him down through the alleys and streets of, of uh, Geneva and he got in front of him and pleaded for Calvin to remain in Geneva to help with the work of trying to establish Protestant churches in that city. Calvin, in the preface of his commentary to the Psalms, recounts the events there. He says that Pharaoh, quote, burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel and strained every nerve to detain me. And... After having learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits and find that he gained nothing by his entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent." By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from my journey, which I had undertaken, end quote. Calvin remained in Geneva. He took the first steps of what would become a very rocky ministry. Rather than retire to the tranquility and the ease of study, he was convinced to become a preacher of the Word of God. And as he did that, 
he found a congregation of people who were hardly receptive to the preaching of the word. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He says, quote, during Calvin's sermons, there were all kinds of unseemly noises, as well as irritating chatter and mockery of the preacher, end quote. People literally mock Calvin in the midst of his sermons. They would make all kinds of rude gestures and comments. There was a constant growing tension with certain influential people within the church and in the local government, and it all came to a head two years into his ministry when on the week of Easter Sunday, 1538, a group of those influential leaders demanded that Calvin step aside from preaching and leadership. In fact, they demanded that he leave the city altogether. Calvin was understandably shaken. You can imagine he was emotionally spent through all of this and he left with a feeling of defeat, resolving in his heart never to go back to any kind of public role of teaching and preaching, but to retire into a more private life. And as he left Geneva and arrived eventually in Strasbourg, he again was confronted by another brother in Christ, Martin Busser, who compelled him, once he arrived in Strasbourg, to carry on in the ministry of preaching. And he began ministering in Strasbourg to a group of 500 refugees, other Frenchmen who had been Uh, run out of France like himself, and he found them wonderfully receptive to the Word of God, and the ministry there was very fruitful. But even while he was in Strasbourg, his heart was never fully separated from the work there in Geneva. God had called him to it, and he knew it. He remained in contact with them, continuing correspondence and letters and as difficult as the ministry was he continued to have a burden for the people and then in 1540 almost exactly two years after he had been so unceremoniously dismissed from his work William Farrell sensing that the air had cleared and that there was an opportunity for Calvin to return wrote to him and asked him to come back Calvin responded, he says, I would rather submit to death a hundred times than to submit to the cross on which one had to perish daily a thousand times over. You could tell even after two years, the pain of this was still deep in his heart, very real. Farrell was persistent though, and he continued Uh, pleading until he eventually prevailed upon Calvin. And so Calvin returned to Geneva in 1540 and would live out the next quarter century of his life there, preaching the Word of God, bending, if you will, the hearts of the people and eventually establishing one of the greatest Protestant works ever. He entered into the pulpit on his first Sunday back and with only just a few brief comments about his departure and his return, he went immediately back to the very next verse from which he had left off two years earlier. He went on preaching verse by verse through the scripture. I was rereading some of this of Calvin's life. I've heard it through the years and was thinking about it again this week and thinking about what a parallel this was for the Apostle Paul. 
We've been studying this letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and like Calvin, Calvin in Geneva, Paul had ministered there a fairly brief period of time. Calvin was for two years in Geneva. Paul was there for three or four months in Thessalonica. And yet in that time, he formed a strong bond of affection with the people there, the ones particularly who were receptive to the Word of God. There were those who were not. And yet, because of that unreceptivity on the part of some, his life became difficult in Thessalonica. Unlike Calvin, Paul was eventually run out of the city on the basis of a coalition of local religious leaders and civic leaders. And he was let out, if you will, in the dark of night. He went on his way, running down the street if, uh, as, a, as a sort to Berea. He has been slandered and uh, humiliated before them, and they would continue that even after he left, trying to smear his character And Paul was basically on the run, ministering in different towns as he went, until he finally arrives in Corinth, where he settles down for one and a half or two years of ministry there. But even while he is in Corinth, he can't tear his heart away from the people back in Thessalonica. It had been a painful time for him while he was there. It was painful even after he left, and yet... We see that through all the pain, while the heartache is still churning in his heart, so is the love for the work and for the people. He very much had them in his heart because as any good shepherd, he was compelled to see them grow to maturity even in the face of hardships. And we've learned... As we've been looking the last couple of weeks, studying this letter, particularly the first three chapters, that this is some of the most personal expression of the pain of the Apostle Paul that you'll find anywhere in Scripture, some of the most personal, deepest expressions of love that you'll find anywhere in Scripture from the Apostle Paul. In fact, it's easy to read over these chapters. I think many people have skipped over the chapters almost in the early part of Thessalonica, uh, rushing to what their main interest is, is perhaps the eschatology at the end of the book. They skip over this, not taking proper time to reflect on the powerful language that he uses here. But when you do stop to listen and ponder what he's saying, you can't help but be taken in by the sheer joy and gratefulness of this man of God out of the love and friendship that he had for these Thessalonian believers. And all of it comes flooding out really in chapter 3 with our focus this morning as he begins to talk about his love and his bonds and his affections for them. We started, you remember last week, back in chapter 2 with verse 17 as he begins to talk about this recent visit that that Timothy had taken to them, and he begins to explain this visit, and he opens up his heart with the number of cares and the number of comforts that the visit stirred within him. He opens up about how what Timothy brought back in his good report so ministered to him during the time that he was even in Corinth. Throughout these verses in chapter two, seventeen, all the way through the end of chapter 3, He's speaking about 
his earnestness, his desires, his joys, how he's unable to bear the separation, how he's been battling all kinds of fears in his heart, how he personally was longing for comforts, how he was feeling at times overjoyed with thanksgiving while at the same time burdened by concern for the flock. And all of these things sort of swirling together, painting, if you will, one of the most vivid pictures of what the 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 totality of a shepherd's heart looks like that you'll find anywhere in scripture and it is really topping off the richness that has come through what has been already two chapters of of a manual on pastoral leadership pastoral ministry that has come to us through the book of Thessalonians it is very very personal it's very heart-wrenching very touching And full of a number of the kinds of things which affect the heart of every true shepherd, every true pastor. Paul is just unfolding for us here a number of the factors that affected his own feelings and his own love for the congregation. The circumstances which go all the way back to the time when he was together with them, all the way up to the time of Christ's return, and all of the things which are constantly in his heart and mind as he's thinking about this congregation and what it's doing to him emotionally as much as intellectually. And so we've been looking at what I called last week six factors that reveal the expressions of a pastor's affection, six circumstances, you might even say, that reveal the expressions of Paul's affection for them. The first one we looked at last week, which was the source of his present struggles. He says back in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, we were torn away from you for this short time in person, not in heart. And we endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us because of the the fabricated circumstances of Paul's opponents, he had to make this hasty retreat. He says, we were torn away from you. It was an unnatural kind of separation. But while he was on the run, his heart was seized, gripped with worry and concern, wondering how these new believers were doing in their faith. And so he says, we made... Several attempts. Paul was apparently a persistent man. He, he wasn't passive. He didn't, he didn't let obstacles easily slow him down. So he, he looked for, he kept pounding on the door, if you will, looking for ways, looking for solutions, brainstorming, trying to come up with some way, he says, again and again, trying to figure out a way to get back to you. But ultimately, he says, we were hindered by Satan. He wants them to know that this, his time away, his separation from them wasn't out of any personal desire. He was kept away, traveling between these cities because of some higher force. Despite what his enemies might have told the Thessalonians about Paul not wanting to return, Paul just forgetting about them, Paul perhaps just using them for his own personal gain and glory, and now he has spent all of his, his interest on them. He's moved on down the 
street and forgotten them. Despite all of that, Paul wants them to understand nothing could be further from the truth. You are deeply in my heart. And Paul says, the only reason I haven't come, the source of this separation isn't me. It's the work of the enemy. We said last week, we, we really don't know exactly what this is. Paul never details it for us. We know at times he referred to those Jewish and religious leaders as those who promoted doctrines of demons. Uh, we know at times he speaks, even in Second Thessalonians, about, about satanic influence over governmental powers. So we don't know if it was uh, people who were masquerading as ministers of righteousness within a religious garb, or we don't know if it was people who were dressing themselves in civic duty, but whatever it was, they were giving themselves to the influence of Satan. They were, we might say, fulfilling his agenda. Unwittingly, none of these people necessarily were satanically filled or or oppressed or any of those things. But just like Peter, who tried to prevent Christ from going to the cross, they were, for whatever period of time, becoming the tools in Satan's arsenal. And so the enemy had orchestrated these circumstances to prevent Paul from returning to them. But none of it diminished his eager desire to see them. He had them always in his heart. And then secondly, he wants them to understand the ultimate incentive of his desire. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. He wants them to understand why he has every reason to want to come back because they are such a source of joy for him. He anticipated the return of Christ and at that return there would be an overflowing, an abundance of joy because of them. Paul understood that heaven would be affected significantly in the level of joy he experienced by the people to whom he ministered. So this isn't just hypothetical language. This is real language. He says, you are a source of joy, of great joy for us at the return of Christ. Paul had seen the fruitfulness of the ministry there. He knew how God had worked, and it gave him confidence, confident hope for the return of Christ that he was going to receive a reward. So he was looking forward to that day because of them. Well, that takes us to the third factor that influenced his affection for them. It begins there in chapter 3, and we can just call this the sacrifices for their edification. The sacrifices for their edification. He begins to unfold what was really in his heart there in chapter 3. He's already said that he wanted to see them. He said that he's motivated by this anticipated joy that would be brought to him at the return of Christ. More specifically, he tells them in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3 how he wanted to come so that they could be edified. 
He says we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel to establish and to exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul talks about this almost unbearable force that was going on within him. He could bear it no longer. D. Edmund Hebert says the floodgates of the apostle's heart were at full force by the open pressure of his love. He could no longer refrain from any expression of his inward feeling. So here he was, he had been holding back, holding back. He had, he had longed to make some sort of expression and been prevented with all of these accounts. But it just became so unbearable. He went to bed thinking about it. He woke up thinking about it. He walked around. It was always in his head. He wondered and wondered and wondered, how are they doing in the midst of this trial? He understood that the way had been blocked for him to return. And so he decided to send Timothy. And it was no light decision. It came at a time when Paul himself was feeling the the full shade, you might say, of isolation and loneliness in the city of Athens. He had been chased out of Thessalonica. He had been chased out of Berea. He arrives in Athens to an atmosphere that was uncongenial, unreceptive to his preaching. They mocked him while he preached. They literally called him a babbler. And even the ones who did listen were superficial. They treated him like some novelty. Luke tells us that that, that all they really cared about was just sitting around, talking to one another and listening to one another and hearing some new thing. They weren't really interested in what he was saying. So it was a time of incredible frustration and dejection and loneliness. A really, really low time for the Apostle Paul. He leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth. And by the time he gets there, he eventually tells the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is a beaten down man. I mean, he has been reduced to a trembling, weak, fearful man. His natural instinct would have been to gather around him whatever close friends that he could and insulate himself against any kind of pain. But a shepherd doesn't do that. Instead, his burden is for the people. And he sends Timothy. He says, our brother, our beloved brother and co-worker, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. We were willing to be left alone. And when he says we, he means me because Silas was also sent. Silas, we're told in Acts 18 returns to Paul but down in Corinth, so he departed as well. Paul was literally left alone. But he was willing to do that, to suffer whatever kind of, whatever kind of ridicule and shame he had to in Athens all alone, to suffer the fear and the weakness if he had to, if somehow 
it could be used to build up and encourage the faith of the flock. There are some people who only want to minister in the good times. They only want to minister in the comfortable times. They do not like the place of loneliness. They don't like the place of obscurity. They'll only go where the crowd is. They'll only serve in the place of popularity. It's a rare pastor who will endeavor whatever season of obscurity and loneliness are necessary to do the work of God because it is the work of God. But this was a sacrifice Paul was willing to make. And it was apparently hard, very hard on him. He literally couldn't contain the desires of his heart. He was overwhelmed with with burden for these people. He was overwhelmed with fear for them. And so he sends Timothy to do what? What is Timothy's mission? To establish and to exhort you in your faith. In fact, you'll notice here in verse 2, he mentions their faith. That is his concern. And it is his primary concern as you move throughout the chapter. He mentions it in verse 2. You go down to verse 5. He says, I sent to learn about your faith. He says it in verse 10, how he was rejoicing at the good news of their faith. And then in verse 7, again, how he was comforted because of their faith. And then down in verse 10, again, he's mentioning their faith. This was what all of his concern was. He wanted to know that they had been established, that they weren't going to be moved, that they weren't going to be shaken. And when he's talking about their faith, you'll see down in verse 10, what he's really talking about is something which isn't yet complete. He isn't isn't suggesting that somehow they would lose their salvation. He knew that wasn't possible. But he wants to make sure that they aren't derailed in their progress of the faith. He wants to supply whatever is lacking in their faith. So he wasn't concerned about their sort of entrance into salvation, their initial trust in Christ. He's talking about how that faith worked itself out in the daily circumstances and challenges of life. He knew they were genuine believers. They had placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. He knew that that was something that that, uh, he saw the evidences of in their life. But he also knew that the present circumstances were challenging. Challenging their trust of God. Challenging their view of God's goodness. Their view of God's kindness. Challenging them to properly understand how the gospel is supposed to work in the midst of affliction. He speaks about these present afflictions they were experiencing. And Paul knew that they needed someone to help them to think about those things correctly, to know how to respond through the gospel, to know how they should speak and how they should think in the midst of all this. And so he wanted to see them established in their understanding. He wanted to exhort them in the application of these truths. And that really was Timothy's ministry. To go and to build up or establish their understanding and then to go and exhort them in how that works out, the application of it. 
And all of this demonstrates another factor that drew out Paul's great concern and affection for them. And that is in verse 4 and 5. That is his insight into their temptations. His insight into their temptations. He says there at the end of verse 3, he says, You yourselves know that we're destined for this, this kind of struggle, this kind of affliction. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And for this reason, we could bear it no lo- when we could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul felt such an overwhelming burden. He says, when we could bear it no longer, when, when, when we just couldn't stand it, he wanted to return to them and help them, but because he knew he couldn't go, he understood the need to have someone there to help them through this crisis. He understood what they're going through. In fact, he had warned them about it. He understood the dangers and the craftiness of the enemy. He desperately wanted to help them understand how to navigate through all of his snares. Paul had tried to prepare them. He tells them, when we were with you, we kept telling you this over and over again. The verb emphasizes the repeated nature of it. But you know, you can tell someone something again and again and again, and it never registers. You can tell them about spiritual conflict. You can talk to them about spiritual warfare. You can tell them that it's coming. You can, you can discuss with them the clash of values between uh, the, the world around them and the gospel that they have embraced. And then they find themselves in the chaos of a spiritual battlefield. And they're completely disoriented. Paul had tried to prepare him for this, emphasizing what Christ himself had emphasized that in this world you will have trouble. But fear not, I have overcome the world, he says. Your faith is going to be challenged. You're going to have to battle through difficult times, Paul would tell them. There will be currents and waves that pound against you. It will not be easy. It will not be light. There will be times of darkness. There will be valleys. You should expect this. Paul has said these things over and over again. Because when they happened, he didn't want them to be sitting around and thinking, what just happened to me? He didn't want them to think some strange thing happened to them. Or that somehow God had singled them out or maybe singled out their church from other faithful believers or other faithful churches. That they were the only ones who were having to go through something like this. And so Paul's reminding them, I told you this. This isn't reactionary. I'm not just just saying these things to you because I'm just reacting to the moment. This isn't some sort of damage control, you know, for these people who are there attacking me. Uh, This is what I was telling you all the way back then. 
Nevertheless, he was worried because no matter how much he had tried to prepare them, he knew there would be so much danger. He says in verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor was in vain. Paul is confessing to his fears. I mean, this is a pastor just peeling back his heart. And he's saying, look, this this is what I go to bed with in anguish. This is what I'm fearful of. I'm afraid that somehow the tempter would bring to, to nothing all of this work that we had done, all this labor that we had done would be in vain. I'm afraid that somehow you will become disillusioned or disheartened or discouraged and that the work of the enemy would, be, uh, would, would prevail over the work of the gospel. As I said last week, Paul has a robust view of the devil and his work. He is no fairy tale in Paul's mind. He viewed the Christian life as real and active spiritual warfare. And so he was wrestling with real fear. All these months separated from them, just churning inside. He couldn't stand it. It was almost unbearable. He had to find out whether or not the enemy had penetrated through and it had success in causing them to be shaken to be moved. He wanted to be there with them and he couldn't, so he sends Timothy to do whatever he could to help them to understand what they're going through, to establish them and to exhort them in their faith. All that leads to verse 6 and yet another perspective on this great Shepherd, he says in verse 6, but now that Timothy has come back to us from you. And he begins to talk about his comfort from their faithfulness. Now Timothy's arrived. He's brought back good news, he says, of your faith and love. He's returned and he's brought literally the gospel. That's the word here. This is one of the few times it's not referring to the message of Christ's salvation. That's the good news. The good news of freedom from your sin and forgiveness and eternity. But he says, he brought to us the gospel of your love for me. The two things he was hoping to hear, the two things he feared the most had been lost. He was hoping to hear about their faith that the affliction had not caused them to stumble and shrink back from the truth. And he was hoping to hear about their love, that all that was going on and all this slander against him back in Thessalonica was not getting any traction and not causing them to wane in their love for him. I'm sure Paul had witnessed already too many times the breakdown of love between believers and he feared that this was going to happen to this beloved congregation. And so he re- he, he received this report from Timothy, and it was just the opposite of what he had feared. He reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us just as we long to see you. Timothy told Paul, they're not alienated from you at all. 
They remember you kindly. Their thoughts, they're not clouded with doubts and misgivings about you. And all of this came at just the right time. Because you'll see in verse 7, what does Paul say about his own situation? What does he tell them in verse 7? For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Paul says, even at this time, even at this present season of my life, there is distress and there is affliction. I mean, he had been afflicted in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens. Here he is in in Corinth. And once again, he is being afflicted. We know from Acts 18 that there was again people in the city who were falsely accusing him. And even as he's currently writing, he is probably enduring some of that. It all must have seemed unending to Paul. He felt himself crushed under it all. The slander and the false accusations and the attacks and the distress and all of the affliction. He had almost lost it. He had been almost totally crushed under the weight of all of this. And Timothy arrives when Paul was at the very bottom. And he brings words of affirmation. And so Paul says in verse 8, Now we live. If you stand fast in the Lord. It was like the fuel that he needed for another season of preaching and ministry. Now we live. We were almost dead. We were almost gone. I'm sure Paul was battling deep spiritual depression. I'm I'm sure he felt crushed by the weight of everything. But now we live. Now we have a new lease on life. Now he could carry on with the ministry with a renewed sense of comfort and confidence and joy simply because of the expressions of the love that comforted him and gave him life. Paul was human. I mean, he was an apostle, but he was human. He, he felt this stuff as much as anyone felt this stuff. He needed that as much as anyone needed that. He understood distress and affliction were a part of the deal. He knew that it was out there, but to go through it was still difficult for him. He found himself at times overwhelmed by the sorrow of it all. And so Timothy comes with this report of their love and their kind thoughts and their memories toward Paul And he says, it breathed new life into me. Now that's all I need to know. Just to know that you are standing firm. And what does it do in verse 9? What does it produce in the Apostle Paul? You can see it there. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God as we pray earnestly night and day. That we might see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith. It just stirred those those desires to see them. And it stirred thanksgiving. Paul was renewed 
in his worship of God. He was energized in his desire to minister to them, to supply whatever was lacking in their faith. His prayer life was strengthened. His ministry was strengthened. His joy became so expansive, he couldn't even put it into words. What, what kind of thanksgiving could we return? What could we possibly say? I mean, he couldn't seem to exhaust all the joy. He was praying incessantly, night and day, that God would thwart the work of Satan that was hindering him and would somehow make a way for him to be rejoined together with them so that he could see them face to face and minister to them and help them through this trial. And all of it leads, lastly, to the final factor that reveals the great affection of this shepherd and this pastor in verse 11. He says, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Paul's just saying, look, this this is my prayer now. My prayer is that God would direct somehow a way for me to come and see you so that I can complete and mend and and bring about whatever is lacking in your faith. I pray that He would remove whatever the barriers are that have been standing there between us. Paul understood that unless God did that, all of his efforts would be useless. He understood the necessity of God at work in this. And so he prays and he asks God, Remove it. Remove the barriers. And secondly, he prays that God would do what? That God would increase or cause their love to increase and abound. He would make them abound in this way. If you go down to chapter 4, verse 9, you'll see that Paul knows that they're loving. He says, now concerning brotherly love, we have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. He was constantly in prayer because he understood that this is where the enemy does his work. That if anything was going to undermine the foundation, it was going to be in this arena. That if they lost track of loving one another, if they lost track of how to dwell together with one another with patience and kindness and love, that they were really susceptible to the work of the enemy. And so he he understands how the pressures of the affliction can tear at the seams of the fabric of this love, and he urges them to aspire more and more. He prays that God would cause it to happen, that, that they would love one another more and more. And not just one another, he says everyone. Probably just a sort of an indirect way of saying, and me too. Because he says, I pray that you would love one another and everyone just as I also love you. That your love would just continue more and more. He wanted them to understand what love looks like within a Christian church, within a gospel-oriented church. It isn't love that stops at the front door of your home or the front door of your family or even the front door of your own church. He says, I want you to love one another. I want you to love everyone. No doubt even referring 
to the very people who are afflicting them. As Paul tells over and over again throughout all of his letters, the necessity to love even those who are your enemies. You must do this. You must abound in it. It cannot be restrained. And it certainly has to rise above the level of the world. And you see why in the third part of his prayer. As he says that they need to abound in this love. Why? So that God may establish your hearts blameless. Blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with His saints. You know, holiness encompasses everything, even the realm of your loving response. Some people think of holiness, and when they think of it, they just think of a bunch of restrictions, a bunch of things that you don't do, a bunch of things that you don't see, a bunch of things you don't touch. A bunch of things to avoid. And it is true, holiness does mean a separation from the world. But Paul is emphasizing that one of the key points of separation will be in the kind of way that you love one another. That's going to be the key to your holiness. And so I'm praying that you would abound in holiness, in love towards one another, so that you will be blameless in your holiness. And all with an eye to the return of Christ. As Paul has alluded to a number of times and he talks about even here. He has a deep sense that this is not really all about this moment. It's not really all about you. It's really about him. It's really about the return of Christ when he comes with all his saints. He establishes judgment. He weighs his church. He examines his people. And Paul longed for them to have the fullness of joy that God intended them to have at that moment. 